The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. How y'all doing? Good. Happy Father's Day to you. And I hope you enjoyed the donuts. And you have a great day planned, enjoying the beautiful weather outside uh, that you get to come into. Uh, I just want to go ahead and preface that this message was not crafted for fathers, okay? Because you're going to see when we get into the text, we did not save this for Father's Day. It just so happens that this text falls onto Father's Day. So fathers, don't, don't take any uh, personal offense to what we're talking because it's actually for all of us, not just fathers. Let's go ahead and jump into our text. We've been journeying through um, the book of James. We find ourselves in chapter five, finally, the last chapter of James. And we're gonna look at the first five verses, six verses this morning. Let's read it together. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. See why I said, don't take offense. It's not just for you fathers. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up your treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Powerful word right there, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's heavy. And it reminds us of what James has been talking about all along. He, he's talked about the problems of wealth and pursuing wealth at any cost. And that's, in essence, what he's bringing together here. Today's text can cause a lot of problems for us, especially as believers, because there's a temptation for us to look at this passage and come to conclusions like, well, you can't be a Christian and be wealthy, or you can't love God and have nice things, or you can't love God and have a lot of money. Now, normally, this would be where I let you off the hook early, and I say that none of those things are true. However, I believe that to do so at this point would be to dismiss what James wants us to reflect on. Now, there are some things that we have to establish up front. First and foremost is this, your wealth or your lack thereof has no bearing on your salvation. You're not saved because you're wealthy and you're not saved because you're poor. You're saved because you responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You agreed that you were a sinner. You repented of your sins, humbled yourself before God, and you accepted Christ as your savior. That's the only means of salvation. So it has nothing to do with being wealthy or not wealthy. Your perspective of your wealth and how you treat it and handle it is always going to have a bearing on your salvation. Do you see that? So first of all, no one is saved because they are wealthy or because they're not wealthy. However, your wealth and your perspective of that wealth will always have a bearing on your salvation. It will have an impact. And that's what James is warning us about. We may sum it up for now with with two sayings you probably know well. Money is power and power does what? 
Yes, money is power, we would agree with that, and power corrupts. Those two things we wouldn't disagree with as individual statements, and now what we're doing is putting those two things together. Paul even reminded his understudy Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, he doesn't say money is the root of all evil. He says the love of money. Again, it's about the perspective. It's about how it's viewed. So we have to understand here that James is issuing this warning to us. And if there has ever been a group of people that need to hear this warning, it is American Christians. So let me say a couple of things right off the bat. First, again, to go back to the first one I've already stated, wealth does not determine anyone's salvation. But second to that, being a Christian doesn't make you immune to the corrupting powers of wealth or the desire of wealth. So even though wealth has no bearing on your salvation, what we do have to understand is just because we're followers of Christ doesn't mean that we are immune to that call, to that desire, to that envy, to that jealousy, to that life of pursuing wealth and pleasure in this world. See, James is once again writing about this arrogant selfishness that our sin constantly leads us to. And we've talked about it over and over again each week that the reason we have scripture is because even though you may be a follower of Christ, you still struggle with indwelling sin. If you're not a follower of Christ yet, you struggle with your own sin, your own selfishness. It's, it's inherent to all of us as humans. And so as we begin to follow after Christ, we are trying to shed these things one after another by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the scripture is always pointing us in that direction, reminding us of what our sin does to us. Sin leads us to look out for ourselves above everyone else. It's not that we are actively engaged in oppressing the poor like we read about here in James. We're not actively oppressing the vulnerable population around us necessarily, but very easily what happens is our sin can lead us to be so focused on ourselves, so focused on our own prosperity that we live with disregard in how that plays out in other people's lives. And while we might not always be directly opposing the poor or anybody directly around us, our sin might lead us to ignore or even take advantage of those people because we are too concerned with ourselves. So a lot of times what happens is, it's not that we are necessarily going out there with this mindset of I'm going to defraud people and I'm going to take advantage of people. But what happens is when you become so focused on yourself, you just go and you take advantage of situations that are there without any regard for what happens to someone else. Why? Because your focus is completely on yourself. Your focus is on how you get ahead, how you advance yourself. And so sadly, the sin of envy can create its own worldview that we end up living life by. And that worldview will justify almost any action in order to secure more wealth. And this whole worldview created by envy will continue to rationalize the evil consequences of any act in order to advance our self-interest. And so the picture that James paints here is horrific. And it can't be thought of as just a warning. James doesn't declare the rich hopeless at all in here. But what's interesting is he also offers them no hope. Do you see, do you see those two? 
He doesn't say that they're hopeless, but he also doesn't offer them any hope in the situation. And so that tells us what James is really about, which is us reflecting. He's not condemning any certain group of people. What he's saying is, if you're not careful, this is what will happen to you if you pursue this kind of lifestyle. So the rich in this passage were committed to their evil ways. And what James paints a picture of for us is that God opposes them in their pursuits. Let's look at it verse by verse and see how James breaks this down. Verse one, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, let's remember the basis of this for a moment. James has been outraged at the wealthy of his day because of how they have treated the poor, how they've treated the marginalized and taken advantage of the situation. Now, I wanna bring here a prophecy that Paul actually spoke to his understudy, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter three. He was saying that, Timothy, watch for these warning signs. Look for these things happening. And he says this, the word of God, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be, what does it say? Lovers of self. Read these with me. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Think about that for a moment. He spends all this time telling his understudy, Timothy, who's just gonna be a pastor, And he says, Timothy, you've got to watch out for this because as the end times approach, as the last days approach, this is what we're going to see. Now, I don't know how much of that Timothy saw in his day and time, but I can tell you this, we see it in our day and time, don't we? I mean, if if I just took that out of scripture and created a list and said, you know, what are the things that ail our culture? Would you not agree with me that the majority of the things on this list are the things that we deal with as a culture, the things that we see over and over again? People who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, people who are brutal. We live in that kind of culture. I mean, we even heard the report from Nicaragua. That's a whole culture that is just finds itself erupting in violence Why? Because of people who have taken advantage of the poor, taken advantage of the citizens. And over and over again, we find that there is no utopia on this earth and there never will be. Why? Because of sin, because of our selfishness. See, this prophecy that Paul speaks to Timothy warns of these terrible days to come in which the people are gonna fall into all kinds of gross wickedness, wickedness of every kind, including, did you notice in there, The love of what, particularly, that applies to where we are in James? The love of money. The love of money. And he even ends that by saying that they have what? A form of godliness, but deny its power. Now, that's what blows my mind right there, because we could take that list out and say, doesn't that represent our culture? And we would say, yeah, that represents our God-rebelling culture. They hate God. They're haters of God. They live for themselves. But he says that these people that still have all of these characteristics have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. 
Well, how do these people have this form of godliness and yet deny its power? Let me explain to you what I believe he's talking about there. He's saying that they say with their mouth that they're all about these things, but they live with their life this other way. They have this form of godliness in the sense that they are going through the motions, but they deny its power because the way they use their influence, the way they use their money, the way they use their time and their talents is all centered on what they can get here. When you have a form of godliness that doesn't deny the power, what is the power of God but the Holy Spirit advancing the kingdom of God? And so when you have a person who is embracing the power of God, the power of the kingdom of God, that is a person who takes advantage of every opportunity not to grow his own interest, but to advance the interest of the kingdom. And that's what James is pointing out as the difference. And this is really hard for all of us because think about this. Now, you're going to hear this in an hour today, less than an hour. I promise it'll be less than an hour. Uh, but here's the thing. I've been studying this for almost two, three weeks now. Think about how hard my life's been. I mean, over and over again, I've become convicted. And I'm just a preacher. I imagine much of y'all make a lot more money than I do. I can imagine how this hits us because we sit there and think no matter what we have, if we had a little bit more, we'd be okay. If I just had a little bit more money to put away for retirement, if I just had a little bit more money to do this or to do that, and, and all of a sudden we begin to just buy into this, even though we have this form of godliness, we begin to slowly creep towards building our kingdom here, that it's about my pleasure here, that it's about what I have here. We become lovers of money and lovers of pleasure, just as Paul warned Timothy against these things. And notice what he says at the end of that. What does he say? Avoid such people. Stay away from them, Timothy. Don't get near them. Why? Because it's almost like it's infectious and contagious. Have you ever been around somebody who has a whole lot of things and they kind of live for themselves and, and all of a sudden it becomes contagious and you're like, well, I want to have that. I would love to have that. And you start looking at all the things you don't have instead of the things that you do have. Avoid such people. Surround yourself with the people of God, the people who are, their interest is advancing the kingdom of God. Think about this. If your interest is in advancing the kingdom of God, then you are interested in sharing the gospel. My question for all of us this morning, how often do we share the gospel? I mean, when's the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? When's the last time that you woke up and you prayed a prayer because of a great concern for someone that you knew was lost and you prayed a prayer like this, God, it doesn't matter what it cost me, please save their soul. If it takes everything that I have. How many of us have prayed prayers like that? We don't. Why? Because we have a form of godliness and very often we deny its power. And listen, if you feel like I'm hitting you in the face with this, man, I'm telling you, I've already got two black eyes and a bloody nose from this. I mean, this is, this is something that hits us at our core. And so don't hear me, don't hear me uh, chastising you today. I'm in the audience with you getting this reprimand from James. And this is hard. It's hard for us to understand and to embrace. And I think this is exactly the culture that James is writing to. James here, very clearly, he says that they are, well, look how he addresses them. You rich. You rich. Now, previously, I called them brothers. 
Now, all of a sudden, he says, you rich rather than brothers. Now, there was something about these people that suggested that they were believers. Yet, what is very interesting about this passage right here is that their actions clearly showed that they had a worldly mindset. So the way that they were living and their state of mind was so destructive that even Paul was warning Timothy, stay away from them. Because remember, Paul and James are writing at the same time. Very similar to John even, and even to Paul, what James does here is he's talking about believers as if they weren't believers. Now that's, that's curious, isn't it? Because it creates quite a paradox for us. But I think James and John and Paul, all of them, want us to understand that living in such a way is actually what creates the paradox, not the statement itself. You know, talking to a believer as if they were an unbeliever isn't a paradox. The paradox is a someone who says they're a believer but living like they're an unbeliever. And all he's doing is addressing the paradox that already exists. You see, the judgment that James speaks of here is very real. And that should cause us to tremble today. But what does this declaration mean if James still regarded them as believers, even though they may be somewhat compromised? See, James is not focused on whether someone is saved or lost here. If his focus was on saved or lost, he would be very clear with his words. But he leaves it somewhat ambiguous because only God and you know if you're truly saved. What I could do is look at a lot of people and go, oh, look at that person. He's saved. He's saved. That's a believer. He follows Christ. How do I know that? Well, look, they're at church. They don't beat their wives. They give a tithe. They don't owe anybody anything. They must be a believer. You know, we all have different criteria of what we're putting out there is why someone's a believer or why they're not. But truly, that is not the criteria that we're going to be judged by. There's only one judge, and that's God himself. And so what James wants us to do is back up and say, not who's a Christian and who's not a Christian, but what does Christianity look like? What is it supposed to look like? What are the ideals of it? How are we supposed to live our lives? And what are the things that are supposed to be the most valuable to us? Notice that he calls here for weeping and wailing. Now, what you're going to find, the further James gets into chapter 5, he's going back and addressing the things that he's already talked about in his letter, and he's expanding upon them a bit. Now, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 9, you will see that he's already talked about a wailing and a weeping. And the difference there is, in that passage, in chapter 4, he talked about a wailing and a weeping that was self-induced prompted by the Holy Spirit of God conviction, but self-induced because they agreed with the word of God. They didn't rebel. They said, yes, I am a sinner and I am humbling myself before God. And he says, when you do that, God will lift you up. But here there's this picture of wailing and weeping, but it's at the end when God is pushing them down. And it reminds me, I wanna repeat what I said when I taught on that passage, and that's this. Every single one of us will mourn our spiritual condition. The question is, will you mourn it in this life or will you mourn it at the end of this life? But every single one of us are gonna mourn our spiritual condition, our depravity, our sin. 
the opportunity of the gospel is that we can mourn here, agree with God, and God will lift us up and create a new life within us. Or we can deny it and say, we're good people. There's nothing wrong with me. I've got most of my life figured out. I'm better than most people on the face of the earth. And at the end, we will mourn our spiritual condition when we see ourselves compared to a holy God, which again, is gonna be the only judge. There's not gonna be anybody else there, just him. And we're only gonna be compared to him. And so that's what James is preparing us for. That's what he's warning us about here. Look at what he says in verse two. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, remember that James has already related to wealth to that of a wildflower wild back in chapter one. He talked about the wildflower that pops up and then it's there for a while, it's beautiful, but then the sun comes out and the heat just kind of destroys it and it withers away. He said, so is our wealth. Our wealth is kind of like that. It's here, it looks great, and then it withers away. Well, he seems to be expanding upon that here in this passage. James tells us here about the degrading influence of putting our hope in wealth rather than in God. Think about this for a moment. Whenever you have problems in your life, do you immediately think, where am I gonna get more money? Or do you think, how is God gonna resolve this situation? Our, our response typically as Americans is, where am I gonna get more money? Whether it's going to title, uh, the title pawn and pawning off to get some quick cash so that you can pay whatever it is. and give. We always begin to think of where can I get it? I can hit up one of my relatives for some money. I can go work some overtime and get some more money, take care of this. Whatever it is, we think, where can I get that money? Why? Because we put more faith in money than we do in God. When wouldn't it be a greater testimony to say, you know what, I humble myself before the Lord and I said, God, I have no idea how you're gonna answer this, how you're gonna take care of this, how you're gonna respond to this. And then someone unprompted just comes by and says, hey, you know, God prompted me to write you this check or God prompted me to ask you what's going on in your life. And then all of a sudden you have this great testimony that's associated with that need. Whereas when our faith is in money, it usually always ends in a bad way. We usually, like that commercial, you know, oh, that's a nice computer, thanks. And after I pay the credit card interest, I'll pay another $1,900 for it. Y'all remember the only commercial I'm talking about? They keep talking about having all the credit card debt. And we just think, man, credit cards are the answer. And it's so easy in our culture to think that what we gotta do is just keep putting money on that because that's how much money I have. I think it's a tragedy that so many uh, churches that I've seen, not so many, there's not very many, but I've been in a few where they have credit card machines in the lobby where you can put your tithe on a credit card. Now, I know that that's not necessarily a bad thing in the sense of you, you may pay your credit card off every month, but the temptation there is to put something on loan that is supposed to be the first fruits of what you get. And so we, especially as Americans living in this opulent culture, have to be so careful and take to heart exactly the things James is talking about here. You see, the wealth of these rich believers is portrayed as having rotted and their clothing is pictured as having been eaten by moths. Now you get, you get the picture, the wealth, the things that I love, the things I spent my money on, things I collected, the things that I have loved and valued are now rotting. 
and the clothes that used to define me, that I used to wear out so proudly in public because they had a certain designer or I knew how much they were or they made me look good are now moth-eaten and destroyed. Now, when you hear James's words there, my question to you is this. Does it sound vaguely familiar? Because what we know about James is he's going back to the Sermon on the Mount and he's reiterating what Jesus taught and he's adding application to it. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, you see Jesus teaching the very same things, same principles that James teaches. He says this here. Notice the terminology. Do not... What does it say right there? Next couple of words. Do not lay up. Is that in our passage in James? Yeah, they laid up treasures for themselves in the end times, in the last days. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. There we have the moth and the rust and the destruction. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither the moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And I want to point out something to you before we read that last part. And that is we typically think of laying up as laying up in heaven only. We think I'm going to lay up my treasures in, in heaven. But you know, Jesus talked about laying up treasures on earth. Now, whenever we lay something up, we think of it as putting something away for later. Now, are you ready to get greatly offended? Retirement is an American-made term. But it has become a way of life for us as Americans. We all live for a day when we don't have to work anymore. And we can just go do the things that we want to do because we've worked so hard to get there. Now, listen to me. Nothing wrong with retirement. Nothing wrong with retiring from your job. But what happens is very easily, if we're not careful, the mentality begins to sink in that it's about me and all of it's mine. I'll give you an example. Have you ever heard of the villages? I hope we don't have anybody visiting from the villages today. But um, <clears throat> what is the villages but a place for older people, once they retire, they can go and they can buy a house there. Now, if you don't not hip to the villages, let me just tell you a couple of things about it. Number one, did you know that kids are not allowed there? Did you know that? You're not allowed there. Now, you can come and visit for the day, but they have visiting hours, okay? Visiting hours for the kids. Now, they cannot stay overnight. Matter of fact, now I heard this, I don't know, I have not confirmed this, but I was told that you, you can't spend the night under the age of 50, under the age of 50, you cannot spend the night. The reason is they don't want some of them older kids that haven't quite made it in life still hanging on and living with their parents at the villages. So they make this rule because this is all about you. And the villages is all set up. There are golf courts everywhere. There is, um, there is places to eat. Everybody drives around on a golf court. I mean, it's not like the place. It's like a utopia for older people, Right. Uh, but the other thing crazy about uh, the villages is this was a, this, I'm not making this up, it had one of the highest rates of STDs of any place on the face of America. I'm not kidding you. I'm not saying that to be funny. That is a real fact that it had one of the highest. You know why? Because there, everything is about them. And so, and here again, if you have parents that live in the villages, please don't call them today and say, our pastor said, because not everyone that lives in the villages necessarily has that mindset. But what I'm saying is, I'm warning you about the progression that takes place. 
That's what James is talking about. When we live for ourselves and we think, hey, I'm gonna lay up some treasures so that later on in life, I can really enjoy myself, then all of a sudden what happens is you indulge yourself and all of a sudden you become the only focus of life to the disregard of everyone else. What about all the scriptures that talk about passing the commandments of God to the next generation and the generation after that? How do you do that if they don't spend the night with you? How do you do that if they have only visiting hours with you? How do you take seriously the commandment to invest in the next generation? You see, very easily it becomes about us and enjoying life here. When over and over again, scripture says, this life, you're just a passerby. What's to be enjoyed is still yet to come. What's to be enjoyed is after this life. So Jesus says, lay up your treasures in heaven where you will enjoy them to their fullest capacity. Don't buy into the lie that this is all there is. You go on, what does Jesus say in verse 21? For where your treasure is, there your, what? Yes, because here's the thing that Jesus realized is that when we focus on how much money we have and how much money we're getting, our heart is gonna be centered in that money. I've often said, do you wanna know what you really believe in? Do you wanna know what your creed is in life? You can look at two things, your appointment book and your checkbook because what you really believe in, you have time for and you spend your money on it. What a judgment our own appointment books and checkbooks are on our life. See, the end of each life in the final judgment, what it shows us is that neither the person nor the treasures are durable. They're not gonna last. Trusting in wealth because it supposedly retains its value is trusting in a charade. The rituals of amassing wealth And collecting all these different precious objects, James warns us it is a dance of death. Trusting in wealth is damaging and it's degrading to our attitudes of other people, of life, and even ourselves. And so speaking with the voice of a prophet, James comes in here and he proclaims the nearness of judgment judgment from the signs of corruption that he already sees. And so the deceptiveness of riches is dangerous for our souls. Why? Because it will endanger so many others through the process. Now look at what he says again. He says, he talks about the fine clothes are going to be eaten by the moths. Now, if you go back to chapter two, verse two, um, he talks about the rich who walked into the congregation and the poor man that comes in. And notice that he said there that the rich man had fine clothes. He uses the same words there that he uses here. I think he's drawing a direct correlation between what he talked about, what we value. When they come into the church, who do you talk to first? Who do you look at? Who do you spend more time with? Who do you give deference to? You see, all wealth is perishable, James tells us. None of it will survive the judgment. When wealth is the result of us defrauding people who supposedly work for us, the whole perishability is a warning against those who are hoarding money to their own destruction. That's what he's talking about here. So James has already seen this connection, and he was warning rich believers in the hardest way possible. 
In verse three, notice how he talks about gold and silver. Now he says, your gold and your silver will be, what does he say there? Your gold and your silver are going to corrode. Now, if you go read and study on this passage, there's a lot of talk about, well, maybe James was so poor that he didn't understand gold and silver. Because the very reason that gold and silver are precious metals is because why? They don't corrode. That's why they're precious metals. That's why people long for them. That's why we make our jewelry out of them because they're things that don't corrode. I don't think James missed it at all because James has been around. He's seen some wealthy people. He knows the difference in gold and silver. He's a wise man. Okay? He wrote the only wisdom book in the whole New Testament. He knows what he's talking about. So what would he mean then? That's a very good question for us to ask. Why would he talk about gold and silver in that way? Well, I think number one, He's talking about the fact that God's gonna use their most precious investments against them. That's one thing that's very clear here. So instead of investing in the kingdom of God, they have invested in this world. So the rust is transformed in this passage from a witness of guilt into an instrument of wrath. So first of all, he talks about the gold and the silver corroding being a witness against them. And then in the end, he says, it's going to actually eat up your flesh. So in the natural world, rust only degrades common metals. But God's judgment on the unjust rich, James tells us that it consumes not only the wealth that they trusted to buy for their security, but it also eats up the rich themselves. Or maybe James's point is this. There is a gold and a silver that will corrode, right? You've bought maybe rings before. You've bought jewelry that will corrode. It looks gold and silver, but what do we know if it actually starts corroding? It's mixed with something else, isn't it? So what you have there is you put that gold ring on and all of a sudden you take it off and you got a green ring around your finger. That ain't pure gold. There's something else in there, isn't there? So maybe what James is saying is this thing that you think is so pure, this thing that you think is so valuable is actually mixed and tainted with the conditions and things of this world, so much so that what you thought it was going to deliver you, it will not. You bought a lie. I mean, the worst feeling in the world is to pay thousands of dollars for something that you think is pure, only to find out that you got a cubic zirconia right? I mean, that's one of the worst feelings in the world. And basically that's what James is saying is going to happen on judgment day. You're going to get there and you think that you've got all this stuff and you literally have nothing. I think it's interesting because, you know, after the church starts with uh, the book of Acts and you have all these good things happening, and then all of a sudden bad is introduced to it. And the first thing that bad that happens within the church where death comes into it is related to money, isn't it? It's when a man who had a piece of property because they were selling all the property and they were bringing it and putting it at the apostles' feet and saying, distribute it among those who have need. And this one couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they had a piece of land and they said, we're gonna sell this. And you know what? We're going to go give it to, we're going to save some for ourselves, but we're going to go and give it like we gave all of it. 
Why? Well, because they want to look good, but yet they didn't really want to give everything because I want to have a little bit of fun in this life. You know, I want to keep a little bit for myself. I've given a lot to God. I'm just going to keep a little bit for myself. And so they go and he puts it at the apostles' feet and Peter asked them, is this all that you got for the land? And he says, yes. And Peter says, why in the world would you lie to the Holy Spirit? This isn't all that you got for the land. Why would you even lie about it? It's your land. You didn't even have to sell it and give it. And yet somehow you're going to lie about it? And he died in that instant. And then his wife came, and obviously they had talked about the story, and he asked her, is this what happened? And she said, yes, I agree with her husband. She died, and they buried her next to him the same afternoon. What a powerful picture of how easily wealth and money and our perceptions of it can corrupt us and bring us to a point of death. You see, God's judgment here on the unjust rich consumes not only the wealth, but it consumes them as well. Look at what he says in verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, James is just not going on a tyrant here. He's not going on a tirade of just talking about all kinds of things and just getting mad and, 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 and just letting his anger get the best of him. He's being very particular about the words that he's using and choosing here because he's actually drawing parallels with the Old Testament. Now, before we get to that, the economic oppression is what he's been addressing here. And it was particularly urgent because what he had was these field laborers in that first century that would come in. And a lot of times these people were foreigners who would come in during harvest time and they would work the fields. So when he talks about mowing your fields, he's not talking about, you know, what we did as teenagers where you take a lawnmower and you mow their grass. He's talking about mowing their fields that were ready for harvest. And so they would harvest it. But what a lot of wealthy landowners knew was that if you could hold back the wages of those harvest for a little while, they will eventually leave because they have to, because they're dependent on keep going. They have to keep going to the next field and to the next field because harvest time is very short. So they have to keep working every day. So he could go, oh, I got one of my guys checking. I don't know if you did, got that whole, I got the whole thing, I promise. Well, I'm gonna have him check on it. I'll get back with you tomorrow. Check back with, with me then. And the guy comes back the next day. Do you have my money? Ah, oh, that guy hasn't got back with me yet. Uh, I tell you what, where are you gonna be? Over there, okay. Uh, when he gets back with me, I'll bring your money to you. And they wouldn't bring the money to them. Well, eventually what they would do is they would just wait them out and they would know that guy would leave and they would get to keep the wages. That's the kind of defraudment that he's talking about here. The defrauding of people who have earned a living and yet we haven't extended to them what is rightfully theirs. That's the context, the cultural context of what James is talking about here. But again, I think James is alluding to that overarching royal law. What is the royal law? Well, it's the second part of the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment, when Jesus was asked, he responded. He put two things together, the Shema and what we call the royal law. The Shema is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And he says the second is like it. First rabbi that we know of in history that ever put those two things together as the greatest commandment, because that question was asked a lot to rabbis in that day. He's the first one we have anywhere in recorded history that put those two passages together. Now, from that point forward, they got put together a lot. But he pulls this obscure passage from, Deut uh, from uh, Leviticus 19, 18 that says, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And he says, you can't separate these two things. And truly, if you go back in scripture, you see over and over again, the way man was created, the way the um, 10 commandments were put together, the way the law was, uh, was used and implemented in their day and time, the, the role of priest, the role of king, all of those over and over again, keep going back to this truth. Now, again, what we find is this royal law, James has been expounding upon it. Just a couple of passages back, he talked about slander. And we talked about how slander is actually right there around Leviticus 19, 18. You actually find that thing is Leviticus 19, 16. And what we find here is what he brings up here in the beginning of chapter 5, we find in Leviticus 19, 13. So he's going back and saying, this royal law of love, love your neighbor as yourself, you can say that and it sounds really cute, but what does it look like? What does it look like when you live this out? What are the passages around Leviticus 19, 18 that we need to be paying attention to? So he brings our eyes to Leviticus 19, 13 in this passage, which says this. Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Do you see what I'm talking about? So right there is the picture that James is referring to. He's saying, you're all about the royal law. Well, here's a picture of it. Remember right there, it says, do not defraud a worker. Do not hold their wages back overnight. Now, the words that James uses here is very similar to that of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, he says this. So I will come, this is God pronouncing a judgment. He says, so I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who, what's the word there? It's the same exact verb that James uses. Those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice, but they do not fear me, says the Almighty. You see, not only is withholding wages a sin, notice right there that it's listed as one of the worst sins you could possibly commit. Not only that, there's another parallel here. Notice that the first thing to speak in this passage, I want you to do a little Bible study. I'm going to show you this. Sometimes we just read past things like this, but look at your passage really closely. Look at what it says there in verse four, and I want you to tell me, or I want you to just kind of tell yourself and see if you get this right. Who is the first person to speak out in this verse? Okay, if you had time, did you notice it's the wages? Look at it again. The wages are the first thing to speak out. It's not even a person. The people, the harvesters aren't the first one to, to, to speak out. The wages are crying out to me from the fields. And then it also talks about the laborers following up with that. Why is that important? Because I think there is a parallel here. And the parallel is this. We see an inanimate object speaking out loud and getting God's attention. If you go all the way back to Genesis, we find the same scenario when there were two boys. They were brothers, Abel and Cain. And Cain became so jealous of his brother Abel because his sacrifices were being accepted and Cain's were not because they weren't made in the right attitude. Again, it's all about attitude. And so it grew this anger in him. And one day when he had an opportunity, he went out into the fields and he killed his brother Abel. 
And the scripture says, when God confronted Cain, where is your brother? His response was what? Am I my brother's keeper? What's the royal law? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And God said to him, Cain, Abel's blood is crying out to me from the field. An inanimate object is crying out to God from the field. Do you see how James is paralleling this? The wages are crying out because the wages are going to stand against you. The wages are going to testify against you. They're crying out to God. But not only that, if you go a little bit further into history, you have Israel. And they were in Egypt. And, And God calls Moses to go and rescue them. He says, Moses, I want you to go and be my representative because, he says, I have heard the cries of my people who are being oppressed in the land. They have risen up to me and have gotten to my ear and I'm going to respond. Both of those have time periods in the middle. Did you notice that? There was a time period from when Cain did what he did till God confronted him. There's a time period from when Pharaoh enslaved the Hebrew people and when God acted. And guess what? There's a time period between when you're given what you've been given in this life and then when God requires justice. James says we can humble ourselves before or we will be humbled in the end. And he's drawing to these parallels. And to go back to Cain for a second, you think about this. When he he umbrellas this whole thing between with, with the idea of the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. Cain is the epitome of not loving your neighbor as yourself, right? And when we take the attitude in life, am I my brother's keeper? Let me just say this. If you have the attitude of Cain, you can also expect the blessings of Cain. Creating wealth is not the problem here. Creating wealth isn't the problem. It's the means used to create that puts wealth above our own morality. The skills necessary to create wealth, powerful as they are, have to be guided by Christian principles, by biblical principles. So the goal of long-term economic culture that's shaped by biblical principles is a community that is shaped by people who are co-laborers in Christ. They begin to work together for something bigger than themselves. Look how it continues in verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, back in chapter two, he talks about the bad attitude of some people who they meet someone who is struggling and they don't have food and they don't have blankets and the person responds, well, be warm and be filled in the name of God. And they walk away. He says, you do nothing to actually help the person. You haven't done anything. Well, here, notice what what he's talking about there was when we say things to people and we don't move to meet their needs, yet we always are making sure that our own needs are taken care of. Here, he brings us the other side of that. He says, what happens when we negate other people and we only take care of ourselves? You are fattening yourself up for the slaughter. Have you ever been on a farm? 
You ever, any of you grow up on a farm, some of you older people may have grown up on a farm, some of you younger people may have had the privilege of farm as a great experience about life and respect for humanity and respect for animals and respect for life. There's all kinds of things that happen. But one thing you know is when they have that cow picked out or that pig picked out or whatever it may be, what do they start doing? They start limiting his running around, don't they? They put him in a smaller pen because they don't want him running out there getting all kinds of big muscles because we don't want that. We want, we want it tender. And so they start feeding him, and that pig's sitting there going, look at what I get. Y'all don't get this. Y'all, I mean, I'm eating way better than y'all. And they're looking at it going, man, I wish I had what he was eating. And they had no idea. No, they don't. They don't wish they had what, because what they're doing is fattening him up for what? Slaughter. And what James uses here is this pic- same picture. He says the wealthy are out there and they're eating it up and they have no idea that they're fattening themselves up for their own slaughter. What's the slaughter? The slaughter that comes at judgment day. And so we live for ourselves. We live for pleasure. We live for convenience. We live for the wealth. We live to eat the most opulent things that we can find. And we're fattening ourselves up for something that's gonna happen later on. And a lot of us live life with that kind of motto. Some may live the motto of too much of a good thing is wonderful, but there are always real evils involved with that kind of self-indulgent attitude. We have to assault these ideas with our own hearts with the word of God. These ideas that exist in our minds and our hearts, we have to assault them with the word of God. Not only will we destroy ourselves But if we don't do this, we'll inevitably begin to destroy others around us. Look how he finishes in verse six. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, the last part of that basically is just talking about the righteous person is one who doesn't take vengeance into their own hands. He doesn't resist you. Why? Because he's waiting on God to be the judge. And James has already said, that's why he's doing it is because God is going to judge you. There is going to be a day where you answer for those things. And the guy who is trusting God is not going to resist in this life because he knows God's going to be his advocate. And so the first part of that is what I want to focus in on. James says that these rich had not only condemned the righteous, but actually committed acts of murder. Did you see that? Now, if we go back to chapter two, verse 11, James talks about committing the sin of adultery. And he even said, you adulterous people. And it seemed kind of odd at that moment, but when he got to chapter four, it made more sense because he said, you're supposed to be in this relationship with God, and yet you are becoming intimate with the world. You're cheating on God, you adulterous people. Well, also in that same passage in chapter two, very close to where he calls them adulterous people, he also brings up the idea of murder. The same two things Jesus brought up in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, we remember that? And so when when he brings up the idea of murder, it's in verse four, uh, actually verse two. He says, you kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. So the connection between covetousness and murder is now brought to full light in the passage that James gives us here in chapter five. The idea here is that this suffering caused to the poor by unjustly withholding the wages has actually resulted in deaths. 
And we see glimpses of this in what we call the intertestamental Jewish literature. Now, what, do I'm, what am I talking about there? Well, there's a whole lot of wisdom literature that was written from the close of the Old Testament before we see the beginning of the New Testament. And we call that the intertestamental period. And what it does is we read these uh, historical accounts because it gives us an idea of how people were thinking before Jesus came, before there was the Messiah coming into the picture. How were they feeling after being in exile for so long and then coming back and never really regaining the prominence that they once had? What were the things that were going on in that day and time? What were the things they were dealing with? Well, James was very familiar with that writing. Now, let me show you where I believe he's getting this from. Passage from that intertestamental period, Jewish wisdom literature says this, bread is life to the destitute. And to deprive them of it is, what is the word? Murder. Do y'all have that on there? Yes, there it is. Okay. Bread is life to the destitute, and to deprive them of it is murder. To rob your neighbor of his livelihood is to what? And he who defrauds a worker of his wages does what? So do you see where James is making this connection? His readers would have been very familiar with these writings. And so he's making a connection that's very practical to them. And you know what? It's real practical to us. Maybe we're not familiar with intertestamental Jewish wisdom literature, but I think we're very familiar with the kinds of attitudes that James is calling out here. And we have to be so careful of that in our American culture. Don't you agree? Hey, I'll say this. Proud to be an American. I think it's one of the greatest countries that you can grow up in and have opportunity. But let me tell you something, where there's opportunity, there's devastation lurking in the shadows. To whom much is given, what does it say? Much is required. What are you doing with what God has given you? You see, we got to live in the context of the gospel. When we know and understand what Christ has done for us, then he becomes the model for how we do everything else. Let me end with just pointing out two passages. First one, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It's talking about Jesus. Look at this passage right here. It says, talking about Jesus, though he was, what's the word? Yet for your sake he became, so that by his poverty you might become. Are we to reflect Christ? in this life? Do we do that? Now, again, listen to me. Don't anybody miss this. Nothing wrong with having money. Nothing wrong with enjoying things in life. What happens is when it becomes your focus. That's when it wraps its bony fingers around you and begins to pull you down because now all of a sudden your purpose and and your contentment and your happiness is wrapped up in the things of this world. There's nothing wrong with saving for retirement. There's nothing wrong with retiring. What's wrong is when you think you retire, you also retire from every command in the scripture of continuing to pass these things down to the next generation, of of investing in the kingdom of God by, by sharing the gospel and discipling. You see, the second passage I want to point to is Philippians 2, 6 through 7. Again, Jesus is our model. We want to reflect him. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
You see, wealth and belongings are tools made available to us by God. But we have to use those tools to serve others under that royal law of loving our neighbors as ourselves. We have to use those tools to serve the gospel, to go forth, whether it's in Nicaragua or whether it's uh, aiding the poor or those who are orphaned as you have an opportunity on your way out. There are those who need foster care. There are those who are willing to bring kids into their home. They just need support and help. We can all do our part furthering the gospel in so many different ways. And so we have these tools that God has given to us to further the gospel, to serve the gospel, not to serve ourselves or even worse, to serve the tools themselves. Wealth, one at the expense of others, is not godly wealth. Wealth given by God through honest means and then used for the sake of others, that's godly wealth. And it has this perspective that there's something bigger than this life. And I'm just gonna leave you with this. Jesus said, lay up your treasures in heaven, not on earth. Why? Because this existence is so small compared to eternity. The question really is this. Do you really believe scripture? Do you really believe that there's an eternity? Do you really believe that it's better than this life? If you do, why would you invest so much for this minuscule part of your existence to be comfortable and to be fed and to be plump here? When the picture that it paints for us in eternity in the presence of God is all that you need or could eat or could want, everything is satisfied. Let that be the thing that convicts our heart and drives us to the truth of God's word. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word, as cutting as it may be. Lord, we know it's for our benefit and for our good that you give us such strong words. Lord James, he had the the guts to write those things, I know, prompted by the Holy Spirit of God, and it's been passed down all these generations and thousands of years to where it gets to us and we still struggle with these same things. So God, I just pray that you make these real in our life. For those who know you, Lord, that they would take seriously the warning. For those who don't know you, that they would take seriously the warning because it's real. And I pray that as we walk out of this place back into the euphoria that life can sometimes promise to be, I pray that you would remind us that this life is imperfect in so many ways. And I pray that that would prompt us to give back to you the things that you've given to us in the form of our time and our talents and resources to further your kingdom, whether it means going across the street and spending time with a neighbor, whether it means funding a mission trip, whether it means just investing in our children and and passing down these great commands that will protect them and their life. Lord, I just pray that you would have your way with each one of us. May you, Holy Spirit, add a blessing to the teaching of your word and may our hearts respond with thanksgiving. And we ask all of this in the powerful, holy name of Jesus, our Lord, amen.